Okay. You turned it on. You're good. Well, it is so fun to be here this morning. Really, it is to see you. And I think, like I was looking around the room and, wow, over half of have already taken Wellspring at least once in the room, right? So, but I see new faces too, and so I can't wait to really um, meet you. And thank you, Lori, because this my house isn't decorated yet, and this is fun <laughs> to just start moving in that direction. Um, I want to pray again and uh, go before the Lord and have Him quiet my heart and um, and ask for His help. Father, we praise you. We do praise you for salvation. We thank you that you, in your mercy and your kindness, Lord, that um, you, we now have peace with you through your Son. Thank you, Lord, that we're new creations with um, new desires because you gave us a new heart. You gave us um, your spirit, and you gave us many great and precious promises in the gospel. You gave us everything we need for life and godliness. Oh, we praise you, Lord, for that. We praise you for this morning, Lord. Again, we ask for your help. I ask for a strong voice. I ask, Lord, for no distractions, that I wouldn't be a distraction in any way by um, drainage. Um, but that we, that I would trust you. We're weak. I'm weak and needy and dependent. And so, Lord, will you, by your Spirit, do a mighty work in all of us. Lord, I pray that we would leave here this morning women who are encouraged to be diligent, to pursue you, even during this busy season, especially during this busy season, where we are celebrating you. So, Lord, have your way. Um, be glorified this morning, and it's, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to do what we always do at Wellspring. So if you don't mind, flip your notebooks over, and let's review the disciplines. Wellspring's purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with his word. So that we, so that we live gospel transformed lives, thus strengthening the church. That's what it does. It strengthens the church in its gospel purpose. That's why we're here and we want to understand and we want to grow in these spiritual disciplines. And at Wellspring, we focus on three concerning our hearts, our home, and ministry. And Discipline 1 focuses on our heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the Word of God, and in particular with the Gospel. God transformed us. He transformed our hearts when He saved us. That's that one-time event. I hope you guys are just being blessed by this chart. But that one-time event. And um, But we still have indwelling sin in our hearts, right? That's the middle part of the chart. But the good news is that sin is no longer our master. But there are still lingering effects. There's still that residue of sin. We praise God that we're not who we once were. We were once dead. We were once lost and helpless. And we're not yet where there won't be a battle of sin. That's heaven yet to come. So while we're in this mixed condition, we need to care for these hearts. We need to shepherd these hearts. We need to guard our hearts. With the truth of God's word, we feed 
we shepherd our hearts with his word, with, with the hope and the promises that we have in the power of the gospel. His word tells us who he is, who we are, and what he's done. And he wants us to respond and live in light of that. We desperately need to get our hearts full of him and his word, equipped in order to fight sin by his power, walking in his spirit. And then we're more equipped to shepherd our hearts after we close our Bibles, as we pursue holiness of life, gospel-transformed lives. It's so important to spend time with God and his word, but shepherding our hearts doesn't end there, right? It doesn't end there. Our hearts need shepherding with what we know from his word constantly. It's an ongoing shepherding of our inner man and our hearts, always. And we want to encourage you to be the kind of women that diligently pursues this. We do it for the gospel's sake. We shouldn't think that it's an option. Life is busy. Life is busy, yes, and seasons are going to continually change. If you think you're in a busy season now and that you won't be again or whatever, it's just, that's just, it's kind of a foolish way of thinking because we're just always going to have seasons that are busy. But keep fighting to, to make a meeting with him and his word a priority. And it takes discipline. It just, it just does. It takes discipline. We will probably be fighting this for this for the rest of our lives. So we do have to be purposeful and disciplined. These are disciplines to grow in. We're not perfect in them. No one is. This is a lifelong pursuit. So if you're discouraged right now, you know, you may be thinking, okay, I'm behind in my reading plan, right? Remember that reading plan is a tool for this purpose. So don't give up. Start today. And let us encourage you. Let's encourage one another to keep going and to persevere. And discipline, too, is about our household relationship. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. Discipline, too, is all about our relationships with those in our homes and with those who enter into our homes, those we spend the most time with as we care for our own hearts first and with those hearts that are drawing near to him, fighting sin, pursuing Christ. We want to place a priority in our household relationships, a priority in making a gospel impact with those that we come into contact with. And those that, um, those who live and there and those that enter in, not neglecting those relationships, but seeing them as an awesome opportunity to serve and make an impact for the gospel there in your home. And then the third discipline is ministry. Basically, we step in to people's lives um, as we continue to grow in these disciplines. We don't wait until we've mastered these disciplines, because do we ever master these disciplines? No. We never will master them. But as we're being faithful in our pursuit of them, we minister to others in the church and outside of the church. That's discipline three. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling your ministry within your household, discipline one and two, you step into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. You step outside of the church and do that as well. All right, so there are your disciplines. Uh, Please take out your outline now. And it says, um, discipline one, the heart. Are you passionate for salvation's rest? Are you passionate for salvation's rest? And if you will, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3.
Um, our, our passage this morning is actually Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. And most of us are probably familiar with that verse, right? The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, but we really don't want to miss the context of this really familiar verse. We don't want to just isolate this verse, right? Just keep it right there and miss right where God has it where he's placed it in scripture. So even though there's a lot of emphasis on the word of God and our hearts in this passage, we have an opportunity to see discipline one fitting into a greater context. And it's salvation's rest in Jesus Christ. But we need to start by reading um, his word. And we're going to start by reading chapter 3 and then into chapter 4 in order to help us understand the context. So if you will, will you please follow along with me, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. All right, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, holy brethren, it's important, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So already he's asking them to turn their hearts and minds toward the Savior and consider Jesus. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house, for he's been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And he's going to start to contrast Jesus with Moses. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were spoken were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are in, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Verse 7, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and he's going to quote Psalm 95 a couple of times, several times here. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your what? Do not harden your heart. God's voice your heart. As when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray there. They always go astray in their hearts. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See, that was the problem in the wilderness under Moses, and he's using this Exodus generation as an example to avoid. And then he starts making some application in verse 12. He says, take care. Who? Who's he talking to? Take care, brethren. So he's writing to professing Hebrew Christians here. And he, that there not be any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin tries to lead us away from devotion to Christ. Sin says, love other things, love the world. And he's saying, encourage one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's warn one another. Verse 14, he says, for we become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as as when they provoked me. For who provoked him? When they had heard, indeed, and all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses, 
And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those whose sin, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter that rest because of unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, let us fear. While a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Now remember, this letter was written to a church, to Hebrew Christians in the church. And he's saying, church, let us, let us fear. He's getting to his point now. And he's saying, I'm really concerned for you. God says there's a promise of rest. And I think history may be repeating itself. Verse 2, he says, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed, we who have believed have entered that rest. Just as he has said, As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and he's going to start talking about God's work and creation. He says, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall, um, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, said, today, saying through David, so after um, so long a time, just as it's been said before, today, what? If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Again, he's quoting Psalm 95, written by David. And David is the king over Israel in the promised land. And he's concerned. And he's saying, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest, the one who has entered his rest, has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. He's saying that God's rest was to be an example for us. How we rest from trying to work for salvation. We need to enter that rest. Where we would only believe. That we would believe and not try to work for salvation. Can't do that. And then our passage. Verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent. Therefore, church, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any uh, two-edged sword, and it's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of what? Our hearts. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So the question this morning that we have for you is, are you, are we passionate for salvation's rest? Are you passionate for salvation's rest? Well, I'll tell you when we're on, um, you have a lot of uh, area to take note, even in the intro. And I'll tell you when we're on point one, because you're going to start to wonder, like, Huh. <laughs> when are we going to get to the first question? So I'll let you know. But I'm wondering, can anyone relate to this? You know, you've been on a long trip. You've been on vacation or a long trip and you're driving home and you've been driving for hours in the car and all you want to do is get home, right? You, you've had a great time, but you've been cooped up in the car and now you're just really tired and you want to get home and you're exhausted and 
at that point, you really just want one kind of rest. It's the kind of rest that you get like in your bed, sleeping in your pillow, in your home, right? So you're just diligent to get there. It wouldn't cross your mind to pull over and rest for a while, like take a nap the last 30 minutes of your trip. You know, it's like, I am so tired. I got 30 minutes to get home, been driving for hours, but I'm going to stop. I'm just going to stop and rest. I'm tired. Maybe you have kids screaming in the back, you know, and you want to get home. But can you imagine that? Or can you imagine that, you know, the speed limit on the freeway is 65 miles an hour, and you're like, you know, I think I'm just going to put it on cruise control at 25 and coast. 30 minutes left of the trip, and you're going to put it on 25 miles an hour and coast the rest of the way home? No, you're not going to do that. We would be diligent to keep our foot on the gas and keep going, to keep accelerating, right? I'm going to be passionate for that. I'm going to be passionate for one kind of rest, the one I get in my home, in my bed, and my goal at that point is only that rest, a certain kind of rest. I'm focused and I'm passionate on that one kind of rest. And as we look at our passage this morning, there's a bit of a parallel in the Christian life um, to that. And we, we, just, we want the attitude that's here in Hebrews 4.11. Let's take a look back at it. It says, Therefore, let us be diligent... To enter that rest. Let us be passionate to enter that rest. And the call here is to keep going, keep accelerating, spiritually speaking, not to coast. Listen, coasting is very dangerous. And this passage is a warning. This passage is a warning for us. The Christian life is not about coasting at all. We're called to be diligent. We're called to be passionate for one kind of rest. And we're going to be talking about it in terms of salvation's rest. It's a big kind of rest. It's the big kind of rest that God provides for us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, salvation is big. It's really big. We don't think of it in terms of being as big as it really is. It it isn't something that just happened, that one-time event. It is that one-time event, and it certainly starts there, but it's much more than that. So, When we see the word in scripture, salvation or saved, you know, sometimes that can, that can be kind of confusing because in the New Testament, salvation is spoken of in three different ways. It's talked about in a past tense way. God saved you in the past. That's the one time event. And then there's a future tense. God will save you from the wrath to come. And then there's a present tense. The present tense where we're being saved. This is the way God describes salvation in a past, present, and future way. So the rest that we receive in Jesus Christ can be spoken of that way. Past, present, and future. It's kind of like, if you look at this, you look at this chart. This is all about salvation right here. God's great big salvation. So uh, chapter 4, verse 3 says, We who have believed enter that rest. That's past tense. We believed we've entered that rest. That's a one-time event. And then verse 10 says, The one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from all of his works. In other words, we've rested. This is really important to understand. We've rested from our own self-righteous attempts to make ourselves right before God. We've rested from that. That's a past tense reality for believers. And then there's the future tense, the entering the fullness of that rest in heaven where we enter a rest we don't have right now. It's a rest to come. It's the third column, that glorification column in your chart. 
So um, that future tense is where we won't ultimately be saved until heaven or until Christ return. returns. It's an ultimate expression of that rest. But there's a rest we get right now in Jesus Christ, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Verse 11, if you look at that, you see it's a command, and it's in the present tense. Be diligent. Be diligent to enter that rest. And there's a sense in Scripture that we as Christians have to be diligent in that. There's, it's a present tense reality. We're still being saved. Salvation is still in play here, right? Christians have entered God's rest. If you're saved, you're saved. And we're to be diligent to enter that rest. And, and we'll, um, in the future, enter the fullness of his rest in heaven. So you might be thinking, okay, wait. Um, are you saying that I have entered that rest, if I believed, and that I am to diligently enter that rest? And the answer is yes. Yes, God's word says yes, both are true. That's how big salvation is. And we're to be passionate for that. We're to see, and, and we're going to see this morning um, in our passage that this is a really big deal. It's a big deal. Salvation is not just fire insurance. So much bigger than that. And we're called to be diligent to pursue it. We're called to participate. I love that word. We're called to participate in our salvation diligently. So the author of Hebrews is, is not identified. We don't know who the author is, but we do know that he was writing to Hebrew Christians. And there were some in the church who were saved, who were genuinely saved. He calls them brethren. And there were some, like any church, who were not. Some like maybe even Grace Bible Church, maybe even in this room, right? But he's writing to this church. These Hebrew Christians were Jews and they had left Judaism to follow Jesus, Messiah. And, um, you know, when they did that, they heard Jesus' words, so to speak, in Matthew 11, where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. I will give you rest for your soul. It's a spiritual rest. And that was a huge thing for Jesus to say. See, rest represented something very significant for the Jews because they knew that there was only one who could offer or bring rest. And for Jesus to say that he was the one, Come to me and I will give you that rest. I'll give you that spiritual rest. Well, it was huge. You know what they heard? They heard, you don't have to work to earn any righteousness. It's all been done for you. They heard that. They heard the gospel. And they, and they heard it and they believed and they start, started following Jesus. But the other Jews who did not believe in Jesus Messiah, well, they began to persecute these Hebrew Christians for leaving Judaism. Some of those Jews who had professed Christ were returning back. Um, They were starting to kind of conform under Mosaic law again, maybe to avoid persecution. These persecuted Hebrew Christians, they stopped accelerating towards Jesus, and they started, you know, to kind of coast, spiritually speaking, and they didn't realize just how dangerous this was. And the writer of Hebrews, he's warning them because he's saying this kind of thing's happened before prior to the coming of Christ where God's people, they were tempted to not pursue God's great salvation with passion and zeal and diligence. It happened over and over again throughout redemptive history. And he's warning this church. And he calls them brethren. And he says, brethren, this must not happen to you. And ladies, 
this is a warning for us too. It's a very sober warning um, that we might become tempted or content to just kind of coast instead of being passionate to pursue God's great salvation's rest in Christ. Look, things are going to come into our lives that will tempt us to stop being diligent, to coast. Persecution, maybe. That's what was happening here with these Hebrew Christians. Suffering, life circumstances, distractions. And all of a sudden you realize, whoa, what happened? I just really am just coasting. We need to realize just how dangerous this is. We can get distracted and coast. My husband does this all the time when he's driving. And I, I talked to him again this year about this analogy, and he loves it. So it's really okay that I share it with you. But when he drives, he's very observant. And he starts looking off at stuff. And he's like, wow, I didn't realize that building was there. Have you seen that building? And he just starts going like this, you know, across the, the uh, lines. And you hear that bump, 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 that warning. It's like, whoop. You know, and we're in the automotive field, and he, um, he notices every car. You know, and he's like, wow, that tire is about to go out, and wow, that car needs a new whatever. Exhaust, you know, and he starts slowing down, and he forgets to accelerate, and, you know, crosses the line, and, you know, we're always teasing him about it. And then, you know, as his helpmate, I might remind him once in a while, and I don't always recommend this, <laughs> because it has to be done with the right motive, and I don't always have, at that moment, the right motive. Um, But we are both growing in this, being sanctified in it. But he'll, like, let off the gas. I'm like, honey, do you realize what the speed limit is? And you're only going, you know? He gets distracted. Well, you know, the same kind of thing can happen to me. I can start to let off the gas. Not because I'm observant, because I'm not. But I get tired. Um, I'm not being purposeful. I zone out. I miss exits all the time. You can ask anyone who's ever road with me. I don't do as well staying in my lane. And I don't even realize I've drifted, you know, below the speed limit. And that's not really an outside distraction. That's just in me. So there are external things. That's the point. External things can distract us. And there are things within us that tempt us to coast. We can just be coasters. Right, Sarah? (laughs) my heart has a hard time getting a grasp on how badly I need to to keep my eyes fixed on Christ and rest in him and pursue him diligently I could be content in my coasting for a while doesn't always have to do with my circumstances and it's just dangerous so this is a warning for us to keep going and to pursue and accelerate toward and be passionate for God's big salvation's rest that he has for us in Christ. There's never a time in the Christian life where we're not to be passionate for that. Not to accelerate and be diligent, ever. So as we look at our passage this morning in Hebrews 4, 11 through 13, we have three passions of the Christian who diligently shepherds her heart into salvation's rest. And that was just the intro. You have four on your outline, but there's only three in this passage, and number four is from the greater context. So these passions um, are in terms of questions, and the first one is, the first one on your outline is, 
Are you passionate to, number one, spend yourself? Are you passionate to spend yourself to enter the rest that comes from God? And it's S-P-E-N-D. Somebody asked me, are you saying spend? No, spend. (laughs) So, as we look at Hebrews 4.11, right away we have a command. And it says, let us be diligent. That's, That's what we mean by Spend yourself. Let us be diligent. These are all S words, so they all have to kind of work. Um, Spend yourself. Let us be diligent. The command means that it's not something that just happens when we become a believer. It's not something that happens accidentally. It's intentional. It's not reflexive. This This is an action where we have to be very intentional, very purposeful. In other words, here are some other words for you. We're to be zealous. We're to be eager. We're to be diligent. We're to take pains to achieve. Take pains to achieve. That's what it means. To be thoughtful about something. And what is it? What comes next? Let's look at it. Let's look back at our passage. Let us be diligent to enter that rest. Not just any rest, but it's a rest he's already mentioned. So before we move on, there are three things that tell us we need to look back. To help us understand this. That's why we read all of chapter 3 and then into chapter 4. The first reason is the word therefore. At the beginning of verse 11. We always ask, when you see that word, what is the therefore? Therefore. Therefore. What is the therefore? Therefore. And then second is that rest. We have to understand what that rest is. And then the command There's a sense of urgency in this command to be diligent. So this rest that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is a big spiritual rest in Christ, in him alone. We need to really understand that. And this is what God's always had in mind for his people throughout redemptive history. See, from the very beginning, even when he delivered his people out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness... He, he gave them small cycles of rest to point them to and to help them understand the more important, bigger spiritual rest that salvation is. It's like, um, you know, when a, a dad wants his little boy to ride an adult bike, but he's only three years old. He's not going to give him an adult bike. He's going to give him a little big wheel and then a tricycle and then a bike with training wheels, all to point him to the ultimate goal, the the big bike, and that's kind of a picture of what God was doing in the past. God gave small cycles of rest to Israel, and they were never to replace or stand in place of this big rest, like the trike was never the goal, right? These smaller rests were never the goal or the end either. See, God gave cycles of rest to Israel. There was a weekly Sabbath, and um, every seven days there was a reminder of rest, and then every seventh year, there was a land Sabbath, and they were to give the land a rest for a whole year. So every seven days, every seven years, and then there was this really big rest. Every 50th year, there was a rest for the nation, and it was called the year of, seeing if you're awake, good, year of Jubilee, and you can, it sounds like you guys know what that is, so I'm not going to go into that for the sake of time, but there was rest every seven days, there was rest every seven years, and then there, there, every 50 years, there was a big rest. And these rests for Israel, they were given at Mount Sinai. This is very important. These rests were given at Mount Sinai in the wilderness prior to entering into the promised land. And then the promised land was another kind of rest for Israel. 
That was to make them think about the greaterest that God had always intended for him in himself. Let's, let's look um, back at Hebrews 4, 6 through 8, and just kind of work through that a little bit, and maybe that will help us, help us to see what he's talking about. Verse uh, Chapter 4, starting in verse 6, he says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter that rest, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain today, day, saying, Today, through David, after so long a time as it's been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, and that's in the promised land, right? If Joshua had given him rest in the promised land, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there's an, another day. Here the writer of Hebrews, he's quoting Psalm 95, written by David. And now remember who King David was in Israel's history. He was their king. In the wilderness? No. He was their king in the promised land. They're already in the promised land, and the writer of Hebrews is quoting David from Psalm 95, and he said, again, this happened. David saying, today, okay, you're in the promised land, and today make sure you don't harden your hearts if you hear his voice. So you see, Psalm 95 was written long after those smaller cycles of rest were given in the wilderness, and long after Joshua had led his people um, into rest, into the promised land. So it was being missed there. It was being missed in the wilderness, being missed in the promised land. He's seeing his generation doing the same thing there. So the writer of Hebrews is now in the New Testament. And what is he doing? He's establishing a pattern here. His readers, these Hebrew Christians, the persecuted church, are in danger of what? They're in danger of doing the very same thing. Missing it. Missing the great rest, though, that, that, that is in Christ. Missing the rest that is only in Christ. God's big salvation rest that he offers is, is continually in danger of being missed. See verse 9? He says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So even though there are all these other rests, there's still some kind of Sabbath rest for the people of God beyond these. And he says the one who has entered his rest, in verse 10, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Aha. So he's saying the one who has that Sabbath rest, that salvation's rest, is the one who rests from working to earn God's favor. Resting from trying to do your own good works to establish your own self-righteousness. We, we give up on that. That made them weary and heavy laden. And remember Jesus said, come to me when you're like that. So there is a rest. And it's marked by the, for us. And it's marked by the abandonment of works. In an effort to make yourself righteous before God. We rest in Christ's righteousness alone. And verse 11 says, be diligent to enter that rest. Would you guys like to take a five minute break? Yes? I saw a few yawns. Okay. So we see that... The writer of Hebrews in his day is concerned. It's the whole point here that I've been trying to make that history is repeating itself. His readers, the Hebrew Christians, the persecuted church, are in danger of missing the great rest in Christ. 
especially if they're tempted to go back to Judaism, which is a religion of trying to earn or establish your own self-righteousness through works. But the danger for any Christian at any time is what? It's kind of the very same thing, isn't it? You know, for, for us in our day, you know, we do a lot of Christian things, you know, and we wear t-shirts and we carry our Bibles and we do all of those things. But the danger is that we might get to a place where we think it's okay to coast and um, that we wouldn't be diligent and that we wouldn't be zealous. So the point is God's plan is that his great salvation rest requires believers to spend themselves or to be diligent. We rest in Christ's finished work and it's God's desire that we run. We rest, we run, right? Not to earn or get salvation, but once we're saved, we run diligently. We rest, we run. Both fingerprints. Both fingerprints. We're called to be diligent, to be thoughtful, and it doesn't happen accidentally or reflexively. So what would it mean to spend yourself? What does that look like? How do I spend myself? Sounds like a lot of things to do, right? Like to start making a list of things that we need to do and start checking it off. Well, I want to offer two things. I encourage you to write these down. I'm sorry, they're not on your notes. But here's the first thing. Spend yourself... To know. Spend yourself to know first what Christ accomplished at the cross for guilty sinners. That's you and me. Spend yourself to know the gospel and its work in you. This isn't about spending yourself to do anything to get saved, to earn salvation, to stay saved. But spend yourself to know what Christ accomplished for us. You could even look back. Look, You could go through this chart. Oh, my goodness. You could just camp here for a while. You could look back at Hebrews 1, just starting in Hebrews. Look at, uh, look at chapter 1, verse 3. And, you know, as we look at these passages, it's easy to just kind of be familiar, but let, let these truths penetrate your heart. We're to spend ourselves to know these kinds of things, to know... That Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And he's the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what Jesus did and it's finished. We need to spend ourselves to know those kinds of gospel realities and those those truths and those declarations. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. It says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering and death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for us. He tasted death for us. Jesus did. Labor to make that truth rule over and impact our hearts, to, to impact your temptation maybe to fear. Verse 14 of the same chapter says that through his death, he rendered powerless the devil. He rendered powerless the fear of death. There's no fear in death. Spend yourself to know those gospel realities. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he, be, he might become a merciful 
and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what Jesus did for us. He had to be made like us in all things to make propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means, and I'm pretty sure you guys have covered that already, but it means um, satisfaction. Not just satisfaction, but you could add to that word exhaustion. Um, God's wrath is not just satisfied, but it was satisfied and then it was completely exhausted. Remember, there's, there's, there's nothing in the cup. Listen, let this reality penetrate your heart. When you sin, think about the last time you were convicted of sin. Maybe it was just this morning. It, it doesn't even cross God's mind to go grab a cup of wrath because of your sin. If he looked in it, there's nothing. There's nothing left to pour out. It was poured out on a son. It's empty. It's exhausted. He made propitiation. He satisfied God's wrath. He exhausted it. For salvation's rest, spend yourself to know those kinds of gospel truths. I'm forgetful. We can be forgetful people. So remind yourself. Remind your heart. That's discipline one. And remind others. That's discipline two and three. I need to be reminded. So spend yourself to know first what Christ accomplished at the cross for guilty sinners. And then uh, the second point, spend yourself in entrusting your life to Christ and his work on the cross. Spend yourself in entrusting your life to Christ and his work on the cross. It's not enough to just know it. We must entrust our lives to it. To believe these things, we must know them. To think and meditate and expose our hearts to them. (coughs) Biblical salvation is about us diligently entrusting ourselves to gospel truths, to gospel realities. And, you know, and hearing all of this, like, diligence to enter salvation's rest. Listen, listen, please listen carefully. This isn't a diligence that comes from uncertainty about whether or not God's wrath has been satisfied for you. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, It's actually the opposite. This diligence is a diligence that flows, that overflows from the certainty that you know God's wrath has been propitiated, has been satisfied, has been exhausted by Christ for you. For those who are born again, for Christians. So if you're a believer... You can be absolutely certain of that. And we're called to be diligent in and from that certainty about what Christ accomplished. So, it's God's intention that your diligence, that you're spending yourself, is from a confident trust that what he said he did, he did. And so we run. And we spend ourselves out of that certainty. So let me ask you something. What, what are we at times tempted to do with something that we're certain of or that we're sure of? You know, can't we start taking it for granted? You know, we get maybe lazy, start to take our foot off the gas, start to coast about things that are certain, thinking like, you know what? You know, he said he will finish what he started. I'm tired. I'm distracted. Circumstances are overwhelming me. So 
I am just going to coast. I'm just going to go on cruise control for a while. But remember, that's a very small view of salvation. And yet, isn't that a temptation for us? It's not how God set salvation up to be. We run because we're certain. We act on his promises. It's because of that certainty that we participate and we run with diligence and passion. And that's how God designed salvation to be. It's his plan. And this is for his glory. All right. We all know Philippians 1.6, right? I am, I am confident. I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work well perfected until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says he's confident of this very thing. And yet Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13, what are we called to do? Workouts. We're called to work out your salvation, not work for, not work for. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. So do you hear that? He says, work out your salvation with fear and uh, trembling for or because God is at work in you. He created us for good works so that we would walk in them. Now remember, um, we're in this mixed condition. We've been freed from the penalty of sin. We've been freed from the power of sin. But we haven't been freed from the presence of sin. We still have the presence of sin in our mixed condition. So in working out our salvation, we are still battling the presence, the residue of sin. And we, and we must fight. We must fight. And we fight it with and from the gospel, diligently. With and from our new mixed condition hearts. With our love for Christ. So here's a summary up to this point. There's nothing accidental about us spending ourselves. We need to be intentional. When, when was the last time you accidentally ran a mile? <laughs> never, never. It takes intentionality, right? And, and we're to be thoughtful or intentional about our zeal to enter the great salvation's rest that was achieved for us by Christ. So spend yourself to first know what Christ accomplished at the cross for guilty sinners and spend yourself in entrusting your life to them. And the question that I want to ask you and myself, is this our passion? Is this our passion? Would, would you say that there's evidence in your life that you're pursuing rest in Jesus Christ, salvation's rest, diligent to pursue Jesus? Or are you coasting? Are you coasting? Hebrews 4.11 says, be diligent to enter that rest. Why? So that no one will fall. So that no one will fall. Do you see that? No one, not just anyone, will fall, but that no one. And how did they fall? It says, through following the same example of what? Disobedience. We must be concerned about that. How devastating our disobedience is. Our unchecked disobedience is it our passion to protect others from falling. You know, our sin has an impact on others. Um, are we passionate for that? I'm thankful for this warning. I need this warning. This passion is a great reminder. Passion? Passive. Passage. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm skipping through notes and it gets kind of hard. Um, but we need to be concerned about it. That's the point. point. It's a sober Warning. But I want you to remember this. When you're disobedient and 
you sin and it's weighing you down and it's heavy and you're discouraged, be diligent to remind yourself of gospel truths, of declarations, what Christ has done on your behalf. Get this chart out. Meditate on these truths. Confess. Repent. Act on what he is convicting you of. So we're to be diligent to spend ourselves to enter the rest that God has for us and he provides for us in his son. And and we fight and we run. And in talking about all this diligence and this zealousness, you might be thinking, that feels so exhausting. So, so exhausting. I mean, how do I keep up with it? How do I keep up with this kind of zealousness? Well, have you ever known an older, faithful servant? You may not see an outward kind of energy, but you see a zealousness in her faithfulness and pursuing Christ every day. And that's the kind of women we want to be. Faithful women pursuing Christ diligently, resting in his finished work. Zealousness doesn't mean hyperness, getting all worked up or emotional, though it certainly can include emotion. If you want to get excited, that's great. Emotions, though, they're going to come and they're going to go. This is not an emotional zealousness. This is a zealousness and a diligence about spinning ourselves to know what Christ has done for us and entrusting our life to him. And the second question on your outline is, are you passionate to search yourself with the word of God? Are you passionate to search yourself with the word of God? Let's look back at Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Many people are probably really familiar with that uh, passage and maybe even memorized this verse, but maybe without paying attention to verse 11. So let's look back at verse 11. It says, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And then verse 12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Four is the explanation given for why the readers need to be diligent. So why does it say we need to be diligent? says because of God's word we could read it like this therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword so it's really important to understand what God's word is doing with our hearts hearts inner man this is what discipline one's all about And the writer of Hebrews has already pointed out the relationship between God's divine word and our hearts. All throughout chapter 3 and into chapter 4. Remember? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So he's saying there's this relationship between God's word and our hearts. Look at verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. Verse 10. They always go astray with their hearts. Verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving what? heart so he's already been addressing the heart today if you hear his voice do not harden your heart so there's an emphasis on the word and an emphasis on the heart he's intended god has intended that his words would intersect with our hearts 
And the problem that he's addressing is that our tendency is to make our hearts unreceptive and hard to God's God's word. So he's warning them. In verse 12, he's telling them how effective the word of God is with our hearts. Let's look at it again. The word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing as far as division of soul and spirit. Both joints, marrow, it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So if this is what God's word is doing, if God's word is searching us, searching our inner man, the wisest thing for us to do is to participate. Participate with God's word. Cooperate with God's word. And we do that by giving it the platform. We gotta give it the platform to be most effective as it searches. We we don't search ourselves apart from God's word. We search ourselves with God's word. We want to see ourselves as the word of God sees us, rightly. So we cooperate, we participate, we humble ourselves before, we humble ourselves under his word. For the word of God is living and active. It's kind of interesting in the Greek, if you want to give a word in your sentence emphasis, make a big impact, you put it at the front of your sentence. And I know I just sounded really smart right then, and I don't know Greek at all. I I get really uncomfortable when I say that, because I don't know Greek, but that's what I'm told. I struggle with English, as you've probably already seen this morning. But if if, um, the very first word here describing the word of God, you can see, is living. Living. So the Greek would be translated like this, for living is the word of God. Living is the word of God. It's emphasized. God's word is living. His word's alive. It's, um, and it's active to penetrate and search the inner man, to discern us at the deepest level. It's energetically alive for his own intentions, intentions and purposes in our hearts. And then what does he say after living? He says it's, it, the word of God is living and it's active. And, and it's this really soft, cuddly blanket that you just want to wrap yourself up in and it's so pretty. That's not what it says, right? No. Scott uses this illustration in Build. And we always try to improve on his illustrations. You know, come up with different ones. And I, we, I can't. I just have a hard time. So I just use the same ones. But he talks about being at a football game or a graduation where they blow up those big beach balls, those colorful beach balls. And um, people start batting them around. And it goes like in one direction and then it goes in another. Right? Have you seen that? And so, you know, they, they bat it and, it. and it flies like one end of the, the stadium maybe to like way over the other one so bat and it goes flying over there and then they take it and they go bat and it goes flying in another direction and then bat and it goes flying in another direction and and the ball really looks like it's alive and it's active but but what it is is it's at the mercy of of every will that it comes into contact with it's at their mercy and you know what's really sad is that that's the way a lot of people view his word today how many churches or Bible studies view his word, where God's word's just batted around. Here's what it means to me, bat. Well, here's what it means to me, bat. We just kind of hit it back and forth to one another as if it depends on our will. You would never do that with something that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Imagine if someone in the crowd, they take out this 
two-foot-long double-edged sword and they throw that up in the air? How quick would we want to bat that around? A two-foot double-edged sword. And it's the sharpest, right? Now all those individual wills, they're, they're not so eager to take a thoughtless swing at that. I don't want to take a thoughtless swing at that. God's word is living. It's active. It's not just a sharp sword, but it's sharper than any two-edged sword. The Roman soldiers, they, they, they had a sword that they used in hand-to-hand combat, and it was the sharpest weapon in their arsenal, and, and its grip shaped their, their hand only. Like, they used it so much that it would only shape their hand. It was, it was just meant for one hand, not different hands. And it was to be directed by that one soldier's hand alone. And God's word is that way, subject to his will, not my will, his will. So when we come into the presence of God's word, we humble ourselves. We carefully place ourselves under the sharpest of all instruments. And we handle it very carefully. Because God's word is guiding his sharp and active word perfectly. Or God is guiding it. He's guiding it to our inner being, to our inner man. So we should be very careful and we should be very humble and very gentle. Because God's word is not something that we just throw around. And when we're together, maybe as we're encouraging one another, maybe counseling one another, maybe even admonishing one another, we should be very, very careful not to be thoughtless, but to remember it's very sharp. I need to handle it carefully. I need to hand it to you carefully, humbly, gently, right? The description keeps on building. God's word is sharp in order to penetrate deeply and accurately. And it's piercing as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. Basically, soul, spirit, joints, marrow. It's kind of an accumulation of terms expressing the inward part of man. What I can't see physically with my own eyes, like my joints and and marrow, what's hidden from my sight and my inward being. It's not hidden from God's word. His word has no trouble penetrating my inner man. And what, and what does it do once it gets there? It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that word to judge is a legal term, and it means that it's the great critic of our hearts, of the inner man. The, the, the word of God, it doesn't open us up at the heart level to the place where we can't even see and lay us bare and then say, you know, okay, I've laid you bare, so... You go ahead and give your opinion. How do you feel about this? What does it mean to you? No, his word judges. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We're opened up so, so it can give its opinion. It can give its criticism. It can give its, its rebuke. And it opens us up so it can give us its encouragement when we've been conformed to the image of Christ. See, I have trouble discerning what's going on in my heart. Left to myself, my motives, my thoughts, my intentions, what's pure, what's sinful. When I'm left to my own assessment, our motives and our thoughts and intentions, they can be just so tangled and intertwined and twisted together in our hearts and we just have a hard time pulling it apart. There's right thinking, there's sinful thinking, and they're tangled. Left to myself, I can't search myself effectively to see what's going on. And my inner man, I'll be tempted to give myself the benefit of the doubt. Right? And maybe even rationalize. Um, but I'm so thankful that I can even recognize that. Because that's a much better place than we were before 
right. Because we're in a new condition, though mixed, they are still the residue of sin, but we're not who we once were before. And nothing compares to where and what we will be, right? So we need to remember, and we need to battle, and we need to participate. We can be encouraged by that. So, okay, God's word enables us to search and see our own hearts. We can't live our lives far away from his word because my view of myself, our views of ourselves will be twisted. So if I have God's word in my heart and my mind, you know, we can see ourselves as God's word sees us and we can search ourselves as God's word searches us and that is what we need. It's very wise for us to participate with God's word in its searching to position ourselves before his word and participate and long, long for it. And it's really foolish to think that we can even hide from, from God's word, to hide or manipulate or rationalize anything before God. We can't keep secrets from him. You know, um, there's no thought, no motive that's hidden from God. It's impossible to do that because he sees everything. So when we say shepherd your heart to the word of God, what we mean is position your heart there before the God, before God and his word, so that his word gives you an accurate view, an accurate perspective of where your heart really is. It's the best place to be. And again, it's all given in light of verse 12 as the explanation as to why we should be diligent to spend ourselves to enter salvation's rest because God's word is searching us. His words always function that way. He was doing that back you know, with the people back in the wilderness when he was saying, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Participate with my voice. So don't harden your heart to God's word. Instead, participate. Invite it. Plead with God for an attitude that even just wants to participate. Lord, please keep me humble. Please keep me from hardening my heart. Plead for a careful, humble, tender attitude that wants to participate and cooperate. And you know, if you start to coast... And do nothing, you can expect that your inner man, even in its mixed condition, will not be receptive and it can grow cold. So there's so much at stake. So are you passionate to search yourself with the word of God? Number three, are you passionate to, here's another S word, are you passionate to strip yourself before the God of the word? Are you passionate to strip yourself before the God of the word? Verse 12 describes the word of God and what it does and sees. And verse 13 describes what the God of the word sees. It says, there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him we have to do. We're not hidden from God's sight. No creature is hidden from his sight. God is fully aware of everything in us, everything that we are at the heart level. There's no use in trying to hide in any way. We're open. We're laid bare. It, it, it's, it, we're naked. That's one, that's one way. We're naked before God. It's not completely clear of what laid bare means. It's parallel, though, to that word, uh, naked, open, laid bare. Some think that it was um, lifting up the head of the sacrificial animal when they slid its throat. It was laid bare. Some think it was a wrestling move that they used in the gladiator Olympic Games where they would get, um, they actually wrestled naked, and they would get their opponent down in a hold, and when the neck was exposed, he was laid bare. Um, he was vulnerable. There's nothing he could do but submit to surrender. 
It's you're submissive. You're not in control. And that's the point. Most likely it's lifting up the chin, lifting up the face, have full face-to-face contact or eye-to-eye contact with God. I used to do this with my kids, and I see some of you moms doing it now where you take their sweet little faces, and you go, look at me. Look at me. I want to see your eyes. And sometimes their face turns towards you, right? But what are their eyes doing? You know, they're like going here and they're going there. And you say, look at me. I want to see your eyes. Look at my eyes. And why do we do that? Because we want your, you want your child to know, you know, I see what you're doing. I want your full attention. You know what we need to remember, ladies? We need to remember God sees us. He sees us. He's fully aware, aware of everything in us at the heart level. It's good to remember this. We need our eyes lifted up to be reminded. He sees me. He sees through everything. So if God already right now sees who we truly are, what should we do? Submit. Surrender. Remember, believer, he's not going to crush you. He already crushed his son for you. If he already sees us open, laid bare before him, vulnerable before him, we can drop any kind of disguise or mask. We can surrender and submit to him and communicate. You know, God, I know you see me for who I truly am. And I want to embrace that. I'm, I'm glad. I need to remember you see me. You see me as my father. And it's so helpful in removing any mask or disguise, or as C.J. Mahaney puts it, any carefully edited version of ourselves. Right? We can remove all those masks or disguises in front of our family members, in front of our um, family, friends, small group, church. We participate with God by embracing this truth that God sees me, and that's good. So strip yourself because nothing is hidden from God in the end. So think about this. This is how we could put it together if this makes sense. Search yourself with the word of God so that you're able to strip yourself before the God of the word. Why? All so that you can effectively spend yourself for salvation's rest. Do you want me to say it again? Search yourself before the word of God so that you're able to strip yourself before the God of the Word, all so that you can effectively spend yourself for salvation's rest. All right, so you have three points from our passage from Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. And we have one more on your outline, number four, and it's from the greater context of Hebrews, and it's this. Number four, S-word. Soak yourself. Soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you passionate to soak yourself in the gospel? I looked up the synonyms for the word soak, and I just love it. It's immerse, steep, marinate, infuse, saturate, bathe, drench. Do that. Do that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4:11 through 13 is a very sober morning. It's heavy. It's really heavy and it's and it's sobering. And he's he's 
he's reminding the church of some very heavy things, and he's encouraging them as well. He's concerned. He's concerned that disobedience is gaining ground and, and that these Hebrew Christians are starting to coast. And he's looking back at history, and he's saying, look, don't do that. History could be repeating itself. It was a very serious time, and it needed a very serious warning. And there is a sense of urgency in this command to be diligent. And I can't help but think, after hearing this, there may be some conviction, maybe in this room, maybe some discouragement, maybe because you're not doing this. You're not spending yourself. You're not searching yourself. You're not stripping yourself before the God of the Word. But, but the writer of Hebrews knows, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what we need to hear. Look at verse 14. He said, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, ladies, we have a great high priest. We have a great high priest, and the high priest stands between us and God, and he is for us. He's interceding for us there. He's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. He's, he's the one who back in chapter 1, verse 3, made purifications for sin, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and there's nothing more for him to do. It's finished. Know this and rest in this, and realities like this. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says, He became a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You know, the writer of Hebrews has a whole lot of gospel realities. Soak yourself there and what Christ accomplished on the cross for us, the good news of the gospel. And you know, I can't even assume that you are all my sisters in Christ. I don't know your hearts. God does. But even regardless of where you are, if you're not truly a believer, soak yourself in the gospel. Go back. What is the gospel? Go there. What did Jesus do? Soak yourself there. So so that maybe if, if your eyes have not been opened, if you... If, if you haven't surrendered your life to Christ as, as your Savior, seeing your true need for forgiveness of sins, your true need for salvation's rest in Christ alone, he would give you a new heart. He would give you, um, grant you repentance, forgiveness, and, and true faith. True rest in him alone. Verse uh, 15 says, we, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Are you feeling weak? We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. And then what does he say next? He says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence. Remember, he sees everything we are, and that might be kind of scary, and yet what does he say? He says, you're weak, and you're not diligent, so run and hide. No, that's not what he says. He says, no, draw near. Draw near to him with confidence. Don't run and hide. Don't run away and think you have to beat yourself up or get your act together and then go to God. No, he says, draw near. Draw near to God now. You're weak. Draw near to him with confidence. To the throne of what? To the throne of what you deserve. 
No, to the throne of grace. To the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us be diligent to soak in the grace of God. Grace, God's undeserved favor towards us. We've got a mediator, a great high priest. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Ladies, he knows that we're weak in this. God knows that you're in need of mercy and that we don't pursue him diligently, as we should, maybe. God knows that we need to find grace. He knows that we're in great need. And you know what? That's who his son is for you. That's who Jesus is. He's the one who provides those things for us. He has a throne of grace where he gives mercy. We're coasters. We're in a mixed condition with a residue of sin. We're weak. We need help. He provides grace. He's there for us. Draw near. Soak yourself in verses 14 through 16. Just don't stay on verses 11 through 13. Knowing that he's our great high priest and that he sympathizes with our weaknesses and that we can draw near with confidence to his throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need does not motivate us to coast. It's a great motivator to keep going. To run, to run by his grace and to know and draw near to our Savior, the one that we're running to and we're running for. Chapter 7, verse 25 says, He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He doesn't say he's able to save forever those who keep on keeping on in their own strength, does it? If you do that, If you do that, you'll grow weary. And you'll be discontent and ungrateful. Or maybe even self-righteous. No. Believer. You can come with confidence to the throne of grace. He tells us to. Knowing that he always lives to make intercession for you. He's our great high priest. Draw near. Father, thank you that you are our great high priest and that you have made a way for us to draw near to you. Thank you that we have, that your son is sitting at your right hand making intercession for us. We're weak, we're needy. Lord, we're coasters. Help us to run with diligence, to pursue the rest we have in you diligently, Lord. And we will rest in knowing that you are our great high priest. Lord, as we enter into this busy season of celebrating your son, help us to be reminded, Lord, that we can rest in you and we need to uh, bring our hearts before you. Lord, will you help us um, to, to rest in the promises that we have from you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for the time that, that these ladies will have in their discussion group time and that they will leave here encouraged and motivated and spurred on to uh, just pursue you more and more. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.